0: Drabblecast B-Sides, Episode 40, The Drabblecast Audio Fiction Production Workshop, Part 1. You know, people always stop and ask me, Norm, why aren't you wearing any pants? Well, thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying the show, I tell them. And yes, we do pride ourselves on always going that extra mile when it comes to audio production. But it's important to remember that the Drabblecast didn't always sound as good as it does today. I mean, a lot's happened since the early days. And the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit!
1: And CNN can now project that Barack Obama, 47 years old, will become the president.
2: Oh, I'm really happy for you. I'm let you finish.
1: But Beyoncé had one of the best videos of all time.
0: With hundreds of people are dead after Haiti's most powerful earthquake.
1: Michael Jackson, 50 years old, the king of pop, has died. Uh,
2: Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of The Drabblecast. The Drabblecast is a weekly short fiction podcast featuring strange stories by strange authors for strange listeners such as yourself. I'm Norm Sherman, your host. The Drabblecast is a podcast that features short stories of all genres, like you never know quite what you're going to get. Podcasting is getting to be a pretty big thing since Apple is kind of taking over the world and making iPhones and iCars and iWhales, and because anyone can make and publish a podcast fairly easy these days, you get a lot of pretty crappy ones, so you just kind of have to dig around for ones that interest you. A lot of big-time authors are even podcasting their novels for free to build up fan bases, and they aren't too hard to find if you look around for them. Shoot me an email at goatkeeper at if you're wondering where to find good story-based podcasts, and I'll point you in some directions. It's that time again.
0: It's the Travel Poetry Corner.
2: Amid the Squid by Norm Sherman. Amid the squid, I sit and think of reasons to explain. My sitting here among the squid that fall on me like rain.
0: We've been cranking out these shows once a week now for over seven years, and we'd like to think we've learned a thing or two about producing fiction and audio along the way. And as someone once said, right this second, give a man a cow, he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to cow. And you've probably just invented some crazy new dance all the kids are gonna start doing called the cow. This little behind-the-scenes look at the Drabblecast's audio production practice and philosophy might serve as a sort of workshop for those of you involved in some facet of the vast and growing field of audio fiction. Those of you thinking about making your own story podcast, recording your own audiobook, who knows? Or maybe it'll just be a fun backstage pass for you, seeing how the Drabblecast gets cranked out each week the way it does. Along the way, you'll be hearing from other sages and luminaries in the industry how exciting In part one, we take a look at pre-production elements, casting, and narration. And in part two next week, we talk about music, sound effects, and the art of mixing. And we also answer some of your questions via Twitter and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the ride. Travelcast Audio Fiction Production Chapter One pre-production, and the experience. Wasn't it Adolf Hitler who once said, the hardest part to telling good stories is finding those stories which truly demand the telling? While the answer to that question is most assuredly no, the sentiment behind the statement still highlights the challenge in producing an engaging piece of audio fiction in today's media landscape. A struggle, a kampf, if you will, that is certainly not mine alone to bear, but shared by everyone else in the business of telling stories through lips and ears, rather than merely the eyes. The Travelcast gets hundreds of stories submitted to us each month. Stories that are often written solid enough, and are maybe even weird enough, but are still not quite, as Hitler may or may not, but probably didn't put it, demanding of a telling. It's not that these stories aren't worthy of a telling, you see. Just maybe not in this medium or with the Drabblecast's particular way of telling it. See, fiction markets are businesses, and one of the things that all successful businesses have is a unique brand and identity, a distinctiveness that separates them and their product from the competition. So, when we say we're looking for weird fiction, we're not just looking for stories that are weird, but for stories that are our kind of weird, and that are also interesting, sharp, original, and technically strong. It's a tall order. And so, understandably, most stories in your average clutch of submissions
1: wind up with this fate. Dear Author, While we do publish poetry from time to time, we unfortunately have no need for any poems of praise to your or anyone's genitalia. Additionally, while I appreciate the effort made to use different fonts, colors, and caps lock in your poem, I don't feel these effects will translate well into audio. As for the fiction you submitted, there is currently something of a market glut for fan fiction mashing up Heath Ledger's admittedly impressive turn as the Joker in Batman with the notorious horrorcore rap group Insane Clown Posse in the world of Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit. As to the other piece, your ninety thousand-word science fiction story, our word count limit is four thousand words, and we will therefore not be able to accept it.
3: Oh,
1: Your final submission was not fiction at all, but a personal essay describing your anger and frustration with editors who fail to appreciate your work and a detailed description of what you intend to do to avenge yourself. As we are primarily a volume for speculative fiction, I must reject this piece as well. On a completely unrelated note, I have recently moved to a different house, possibly in another country, and so all further communication should be directed to that address which I have unaccountably forgotten to include in this missive. Thank you for your interest in our podcast. Sincerely, Nathaniel Lee. Managing Editor.
0: That was Nathan Lee, our managing editor, who reads the bulk of the submissions we get and then sends a handful to me to see if the two of us can find some sort of consensus on what to produce. Currently, about one out of every 75 stories we get sent ends up being bought. The rest receive an email from Nathan, like that, to some degree. The other chunk of stories we run on the show are stories we solicit or commission. Stories we pick up from our slush pile are stories we not only think demand our telling, but that we're particularly excited about telling as part of our brand. I know a submission's a winner when the production starts to take shape in my brain as I read the story the very first time. The perfect narrator, the perfect musical scoring and sections. Some vision of the end experience starts to take shape. And that's what we're trying to provide here, of course. Not just a story, but an experience. And all the elements and layers we're talking about here in these two workshop parts, all the tips and technical stuff, everything's in service to the experience, always beginning with that end in mind. A lot of the time, your vision of the experience as a producer will be parallel with the authors, and it's just about reinforcing or bringing out some parts of the story in greater relief. But sometimes the muse randomly farts on you, and you see this opportunity to recast the story in a whole new context or something. Here are some examples of what I'm talking about there from past TravelCast episodes. You decide if they work or not. Hey there, it's the Sinclairs. Your everyday future family. Hey there. It's the Sinclairs, the craziest of neighbors there could be. Apologies All Around was a story about a family of the future and a robot that serves apologies. In text, when I read it the first time, I couldn't get out of my head the idea of this being some hilarious television sitcom from an alternate future universe, even though the text didn't indicate any of this directly at all. Again, it was just the farting of the muse. "'So we did everything from making sitcom type cover art "'to adding laugh tracks.'
2: "'Daddy!' Rachel shouted. "'There's a robot at the door!' Winston Sinclair hoped it wasn't one of those sales bots. They were dang near impossible to get rid of. He picked up Rachel and raised the viewport she had used. The robot was three feet tall, gray, squat, plain-looking. "'All right, robot. What do you want?' <laughs> It had a cheap, synthesized voice. Are you Winston Sinclair, born February 18th, 2000? Mmm, yeah. You worked at Comatech from 2023 to 2026? Honey, don't buy anything. Pardon, Winston Sinclair. I am not here to sell you something. I am not here to buy something. Winston Sinclair, sir, I am here to apologize.
0: In the story, Malish, by Mike Resnick, Travelcast episode 67, the text of the story brings us a tale of a jockey who makes a deal with the devil. I had just gotten back from watching the Preakness, a horse race in Baltimore, and couldn't shake the idea of producing this one in the style and voice of a racehorse announcer.
2: His name was malicious, and you can look it up in the American racing manual. From ages 2 to 4, he won 5 of his 46 starts, had 7 different owners, and never changed hands for more than $800. His method of running was simple and to the point. He was usually last out of the gate, last in the backstretch, last around the far turn, and last at the finish wire. He didn't have a nickname back then either. Exterminator may have been Old Bones, and Man of War was Big Red. And of course Equipoise was the chocolate soldier, but Malicious was just plain Malicious. Turns out he was pretty well named after all. It was Santa Anita, February, 1935. And this you can't look up in the racing manual, or the Daily Racing Form chart book, or any of the other usual sources, so you're just gonna have to take my word for it. Malicious was being rubbed down by Chauncey McGregor, who'd once been a jockey until he got too heavy. He'd latched on as a groomer because he didn't know anything else but the racetrack. Chauncey'd been trying to supplement his income by betting on the races, but he was no better at picking horses than at riding them. He had a passion for claimers who were moving up in class, which any tout will tell you is a quick way to go broke. Old Chauncey. He was getting mighty desperate. And on this particular morning, he'd stopped rubbing malicious and put him in his stall, and then started trading low whispers with a gnarly little man who had just appeared in the shed row with no visitor's pass or anything.
0: In the first example, apologies all around, the author, Jeff, loved what we did with the story and really thought it added to the experience. In the latter, Malish, Mike Resnick wasn't crazy with the style we chose to present the story in. What do you think? Either way, the first thing to take away from this is it's important to keep the dialogue going with the author throughout the whole process. It's a good practice to keep authors from ever being too surprised by anything you did in the production, good or bad. The other thing to take away, and both of these points are only for people producing another author's story in film or audio, is to provide a clause in your contract terms with authors, reserving the right to make slight changes to the story text, if needed, to align the text with any critical production elements. The Drabblecast's contract reads, We reserve the right to make minor copy-editing changes to conform the style of the text to its customary form and usage, or in such instances that serve the production in audio. To ensure that no such changes are made without your approval, we will furnish you, the author, with page proofs of the work in advance of publication. You agree to return such proofs with corrections or approval in no more than 15 days from receipt, or the proofs will be understood to be agreed upon. We try not to freak authors out too much on the subject. We won't buy stories if we feel much has to be changed in the first place. Not much should need to be tampered with. But all sorts of unexpected things can inspire slight, text-related production edits to a story throughout the process. Trust me. The partnership between writer and producer isn't a relay where one takes the baton from the other and begins running. It's one where both run together, hand in hand, platonically, professionally, awkwardly. Okay, so you've got a story that demands a telling. Next phase is coming up with an optimistic timeline slash game plan that gives you plenty of contingency and leeway space. Without a timeline and master plan, you'll never be able to communicate deadlines and priorities, and that'll eventually lead to hang-ups and frustration for everyone involved. Not creating and communicating a timeline or work schedule with your peeps is more than just a death sentence for your project. It's a death paragraph, possibly even some sort of attempt at flash fiction. Take the time to save yourself time by planning your shit out, Holmes. Okay, it's time to hit the email and start casting this bad boy. Chapter 2. Casting and Narration. It goes without saying that one of the most important things in putting together a story and audio is the act of distancing yourself from the potentially menacing behavior of both sharks and bees. So I won't, and if you're just now tuning in, I haven't. What does bear mentioning, however, is the importance of casting the right folks in your project. Once just the practice of commercial fishermen and nerds dressed up as mages attempting area effect spells with the power of imagination, casting can now be considered a high-priority activity for audio producers and rappers trying desperately to rhyme something with ass string alike. What? I don't know. This isn't a hip-hop workshop. I can't possibly be expected to know what in the world I meant by that casting requires vision and an intimate knowledge of the story in the old days and still certainly enough today you'd advertise a casting call and try to match up strangers who audition for various roles aligning with the voice actors voice type and abilities more and more today though as the world flattens out and together we lurch in silence towards the singularity and doubtless immortality within the machine forever forsaking the memory of light summer rain on your face or the warmth of a lover's touch today it's more about knowing people and tapping into your little little black book of contacts to reach out to them. If you listen to story podcasts and audiobooks online, you'll notice a lot of interconnectivity and reoccurring names circulating about. There's a reason for that. I'll let Abby Hilton, author and producer of the Guild of the Cowrie Catchers audiobook, go into why that is a little more.
3: Hi, this is Abigail Hilton from the Guild of the Cowrie Catchers podcast. Norm plays my most charismatic and most talkative, and probably most loved character, <laughs> Sylvia Lemire, from that story. And uh, for casting for Cowrie Catchers, it's, it's been a five-year project. Uh, so I, I cast most of the characters a long time ago. I cast all of them from people who were in podcasts that I knew. So I did not make a casting call. I have never done a casting call for Cowrie Catchers. But I, I used podcasters that I listened to, I already knew how their voices sounded. I had some idea of their personalities from their shows. And I knew that they were people that I could uh, I could promote for, even even though I was asking them to do free work, I could at least promote their podcasts and I knew that would be valuable to them as opposed to people that didn't have anything that they were trying to promote that I, I couldn't really do anything for. These were people that I could do something for. they had something I could promote. Then as far as deciding whether I want to continue working with people, um, obviously they're acting. I asked myself whether they could act. That was really important. Most important. Secondly, um, could they record their amazing acting in a clean uh, environment where I wouldn't have to do excessive noise removal? Could they use their equipment? So those are kind of the basic two things. Can they act? Can they use their equipment? And then beyond that, for major characters, um, I needed to know that they were reliable and that they finished things. And actually, the presence of a podcast, the fact that all of these people had a podcast or were involved in the podcasting community on other large projects, that was a pretty good indicator to me that they were capable of, of following through. So Norm had already been doing Drabblecast for a while. Um, he was clearly capable of keeping a podcast going week to week to week to week. And that was, I felt, a good indicator that he would continue to send me lines in a timely fashion. It was also important to me for the major characters that the voice actor like the character and that they feel at least some empathy with the things that the character thought and said. And obviously I wasn't trying to cast people who were exactly like these characters, but I wanted the voice actor to, to have some empathy with what the character was saying so that they could really... Get the emotion right. And I feel that people do better work when they're doing work that they enjoy. So I wanted um, people who I thought would actually enjoy playing these parts. So that is how I cast characters. Speaking of finishing things, (laughs) Norm, please send me the rest of your lines.
0: I actually told Abby if she contributed to this and recorded some thoughts on the matter, I'd send the rest of the line she needs from me for her book by the end of the week. See how this works? You scratch my back and I get a little weirded out because I don't know you. And then see if there's any projects we can collaborate on. I'd also like to add that voice actor's sound quality tends to vary a lot from what you hear in their demos and what you might hear in the finished sound you get from them in your Dropbox. Ask voice actors for demo recordings that are recorded in the same location they'll be reading your story, and recorded with the same gear they'll be reading your story on too if you can, because otherwise you really never know what you might get. If it looks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, it still might be a serial rapist slash murderer dressed up as a duck, is what I'm trying to say. Best not to let any ducks of the evening in come round knocking late on your door. Narration. Narration is to audio fiction what Tyler Perry movies are to film as a whole, which is to say, the most important part. I'm still going, just making the pregnant pauses longer for dramatic effect, essentially pushing the boundaries of African-American transgender cinema. And speaking of which, we're delighted to have voice actress Veronica Giger on the show to deliver a little sagacity. Nonlinear segue.
4: Hi, this is Veronica Jger, and Norm asked me to give a few words, uh, say a few words, pass along some advice and learned wisdom from someone who reads for other people, or as I like to say, I make funny noises into a microphone to make other people's stories sound awesome. So, what have I learned? Well, One of the things that I've learned is that there are some questions that an author and a narrator should agree on, or at least questions and answers that should be had before the recording takes place. So this is some stuff I've picked up from working with authors and some questions that I know as a narrator I need to ask to kind of get the best story told. So first of all, when working with a narrator, the author really should present a basic summary of the work. That should include the book's word count and the number of chapters. Now, the reason we ask for the word count is because that allows for an estimate of how many hours the audiobook will take. Now, every narrator should know about their own pace. For me, a thousand words takes about eight minutes to narrate. Knowing the number of chapters can help a narrator determine the number of sessions that it will take to record a book. I know when I record, I try to record a chapter at a time. Now, depending upon the genre of the work, and this goes double, triple, quadruple, what have you, for all of the fantasy, sci-fi, horror, all you lovely Lovecraftian people with your sequential consonants and apostrophes. The author needs to prepare a pronunciation guide for difficult words and terminology. My job as a narrator is to bring the author's work to life, and that can be difficult to do if I'm consistently mispronouncing a main character's name. It's not for me to choose the pronunciation. That's the author's choice. It's up to me to know what it is and to consistently convey that. So, a pronunciation guide for character names, locations, and entities can keep those misunderstandings to a minimum and allow for the best narration. Character sketches. And I'm not talking the 12-page character bio that says, you know, exactly what your protagonist wants to have for breakfast on Thursday, but I'm talking vocal characteristics. Um, Those kinds of character sketches provide a narrator with important information about vocal mannerisms and accents that should be carried through in an audio version. So make sure that the narrator knows if there are accents or tones or vocal affectations that the characters should have. And I know that as an author, most authors will say, well, just read it. That's great. I will read it. I'm going to read it and narrate it. But sometimes it helps to know that up front. It helps to know up front, especially if it's an accent that I have to learn. I don't want to learn it on the fly. I want to learn it perfected before I start recording. So make sure you have that ready to give your narrator and give examples. Now, well, this character needs to sound like Liam Neeson. Okay. If the narrator knows that he or she cannot sound like Liam Neeson, well, you may have to find another narrator. And that's okay. Not every narrator is perfect for every story. That's why you want to get clips and auditions and have that open and frank and honest conversation with your narrator, because at the end of the day, that's the narrator's job, to make sure that your story is told in the best possible way. And by the way, from a narration standpoint, not every character needs an accent. You can actually do a lot with tones and shifting, you know, a high-pitched voice and And a low-pitched voice, and ways to deliver words patterns of speaking, not accents per se. Sometimes outlandish accents fit perfectly within a story. Other times, they can be distracting. So consider that when writing. Consider that when pushing that to your narrator.
0: Thanks, V. All right, let's start with the basics. Standard issue gear for the professional storyteller. Microphones. As we continue to mourn together the recent loss of beloved actor, husband, and father, Philip Seymour Hoffman, a subject which is certainly still an open wound on the surface of many of our grieving hearts, let us take a moment now to adequately reflect on how you should never record on your computer's built-in microphone. This is what it sounds like. I know, sorry, that's a little insensitive, it's just that this is what it sounds like when you're indelicately leveraging Philip Seymour Hoffman's untimely death as a ploy for attention with proper equipment that costs only, oh I don't know, maybe 150 bucks or so, and this is what it sounds like when you're a cheapskate and tactlessly leverage Philip Seymour Hoffman's tragic passing as a rotten ploy for attention with just your crappy computer mic. Hear the difference? How could you not? Heroin? Or I mean, there are other reasons. That one might not plane passing overhead, or your sinuses are stuffy, maybe you're coming down with a cold. I don't know, there are lots of reasons you might not have been able to, just that was the first thing that, you were underwater maybe, maybe a flip-flop came off, or you found a cool sand dollar. But it should have been a pretty stark difference otherwise. I hate it when people send an audio like that. Briefly, because everyone involved in sound recording needs to know at least a little bit about mic types, let's go over them. The dynamic microphone. This is an industry workhorse, a mic that can take a good amount of abuse, both in the sense that you can drop them on the hard concrete as you're unpacking your gear, or right in front of Kesha as she prepares to molest the air. Chances are these mics will probably still continue to work, may God have mercy on our souls. They have a narrower frequency range and accentuate the mids. They're excellent for all kinds of situations where high volume is the name of the game, like rock singing, guitar amps, drums, and they'll get the job done just fine for voice acting too. The most popular dynamic mics are the Shure SM57 and the Shure SM58. I do most of my podcast recording on a 58. Condenser mics. Condenser mics tend to pick up a wider frequency range, and you'd probably want to use one of these to catch, for example, the most out of a full-range instrument, such as a piano or cello. These are more sensitive mics and respond well to abrupt or sudden changes in sound level. We call those transients. Think cymbal crashes or hard strummed acoustic guitars, even the occasional voice actors tss and. Kss. Condensers come in two sizes, small and large diaphragm. The larger have a fuller sound compared to the small ones, which are called pencil mics and reproduce the high frequency a bit more. Condenser mics need external power, or what the more paranormally inclined tend to call phantom power, to work. And they're often expensive. Luckily, there are a few budget condenser microphones out there for under 100 bucks, like the awesome Audio-Technica AT2020 and the M-Audio Nova that can get you started. Alright, the only other thing you really have to know about right now is mic directional patterns. There's several different types out there, but only two big main ones to concern yourself with now. Depending on the situation you find yourself in, you gotta know which directional patterns best suited for the job. Directional mics, also called cardioid, which sounds like something big and radioactive that Japanese scientists would engineer to try and take out something else big and radioactive. I mean, (laughs) fool me once, huh guys? Directionals pick up sound from directly in front of them, and reject everything else coming back, minimal side-bleeding. Omnidirectional mics pick up sound from all around the mic head. They come in handy if you're recording something in a great-sounding hall, or if you want to capture all the reflections of the room, or if you're trying to record sound effect settings or ambient atmospheres outside. So, which type should you get? You should probably have a solid dynamic and condenser mic, and a directional and omnidirectional, if you really want to take advantage of all the different strengths and cool things each mic can do. But if you're on a budget, a dynamic directional mic will probably get the job done just fine, or a large diaphragm condenser if money isn't that much of an object. Either way, they both sound better than this. There you go. Now you just need a way to plug that thing into your computer, or whatever you're working on. I'll assume it's a computer for the sake of time. Some mics come designed with a USB end, and 10 bucks says more and more of them will be that way in the future. But for now, you probably need some sort of interface to allow your mic to communicate with your computer and audio software, since most standard mics have XLR outs. Fortunately, there are audio interfaces, conveniently called audio interfaces, to get that job done. A good one that I use a lot is the PreSonus Audiobox. It runs a little over 100 bucks, but you can find cheaper ones with less inputs out there, too. The advantage to using a good mic in conjunction with a versatile interface, rather than, say, one of the USB mics, is A, you can adjust levels before they even get to your computer, B, you can record with several mics simultaneously, and C, and maybe the biggest of all, you can swap in and out various microphone types for various different types of projects know if you start taking guitar lessons or something, you start out with some crappy ass guitar at first, but if you wind up sticking with it, before you know it, it's ten years later and you've got twelve of the damn things laying around your house. And probably a couple of banjos, a zither, and something with bike spokes soldered to one end of a lamp that you made one night when you were high and call a lamp <laughs> It needs a spool of tangled fishing line wrapped around one end to really jam on, which you keep meaning to pick up at the store but never seem to get around to actually doing it, because, let's face it, you probably have your doubts that it'll turn out to be not an instrument in the end after all. But hey, that's okay. In order to shine like the sun, we must also be taught lessons in burning. And Hitler really did say that. Anyways, point of all that was... That's how mics become if you give a shit about the way recorded things sound. You'll have them laying around everywhere and you'll always be prepared for whatever comes your way. It's nice to have an external interface that allows you to leverage all that versatility. Alright so you've got the right gear. Next point. There are two things that keep readers from delivering the best reads ever, in my opinion. Bad noise and bad readings. Bad noise is probably the single biggest tell of an amateur. And I'm not just talking about bad ambient room noise. I'm talking about plosives, lip smacks, vocal fry, distractive breathing, swallowing, page turns, the list goes on. And it's easy to get freaked out by all the potentially negative things you can do with your face or mic to screw things up, and in the end you wind up with a safe but totally boring performance. My advice? You've got a good recording setup, you've got some main prerequisites in mind, that is, you're the right distance and angle to the microphone, and you're in an ideal quiet room. Don't worry about anything else that might take you out of balls to the wall mode when you're dramatically reading a story. Just hear when those things happen, and be ready to spend plenty of time editing and doing retakes. The more you can identify and listen for the personal tics and hang-ups that you're usually susceptible to, the more you'll notice over time that you don't do them as much anymore and that means less time at the editing table. But there are a few things you can do preventatively off the bat. Let's talk about those prerequisites real quick. You've got an ideal quiet room, and you're the right distance and angle from the mic. It's been said that infants up to six months old can only see the distance from their mother's loving eyes to that of her sweet, ever heaving teats of bounty, where of course they abide in relentless suckling posture. I'd say it's a good analogy for podcasters and their microphones too, as a general rule. Keep your microphone roughly boob level to the front of your face. Now that's base boob level, mind you. Should be something like six to eight mammometers. Or if you're all hung up on Imperial, eight to ten inches. (laughs) Americans. But Norm, my boobs are like the weird tubular kind National Geographic, you might say. Or I'm a dude. Look, the ideal distance is going to vary based on all sorts of stuff. Mic type, voice type, project type, room type. You're going to have to experiment and listen with a discerning ear. But even more importantly, no matter however close or far you are to the mic, try to stay that same distance consistently throughout the project. It changes everything and is easy to forget between retakes. Decide on a consistent distance that reflects the full, rich range of your voice with as little room space around it as possible, and then remember that distance from the microphone like it was your damn ATM code. Oh, and just as a side note, always have a pop filter over your mic head. It's a crucial accessory. I lost mine a couple weeks ago and have been putting a light wool sock over my mic head every time I need to record. It's not as good as the spongy soft material they make pop filters out of, of course, and it's got a pretty gross cat afterbirth stain on it, but it gets the job done. Moving on, because I know you're curious, and this is no cat midwifery workshop. Talking closer to the mic, like I like to do, delivers a strong and direct frequency, as opposed to talking farther back, and coupled with a good directional mic can also decrease interferences by pesky ambient background noise, like neighbors fighting over an alcohol problem, or pets giving birth, children asking for love and reassurance. But it also highlights other types of bad noise, like mouse clicks, or noisy computer fans if you're too close to your setup, popping peas, Hey, Papa's panties are private, pal. And saliva management. Yeah, you like that, Hernandez? Or are you going to talk? Because I got all day. Recording space. I record most of the Drabblecast stuff in my living room. I just like the way my living room feels and sounds. It's home base. But if I have to change environments every now and then to keep the raving Drabble masses sated with regular portions of thick, nutrient-rich norm extract, then you gotta do what you gotta do. But commit to that space when you do. Don't be changing around a lot. No amount of EQ can replicate or patch together what you sound like wherever you are at this very moment in space-time. Keep it consistent. Rooms with more carpet, curtains, padding on the walls, than flat, hard, sound, bouncy surfaces are best. You don't want to hear the room. You don't want to hear the voice actor. You want to hear the story. One way to try to cheat if you've got differential room ambiance coming through in your audio or between multiple voice actors is to record another layer of ambient room noise. Buff it up a smidge with some gain and EQ, string it out lightly in a track running parallel with your other patchy audio. This won't always fill in the potholes, but it does sometimes sand the edges a little bit, make the road a little less bumpy. You can also use music, of course, and supplementary sound to cover up voiceover inconsistencies or at least divert attention. But we'll get more into that next week in part two. And with that, friends, and ducks in friends' clothing up to no good, we conclude Part 1 of the Drabblecast Audio Production Workshop. We hope you've learned a thing or two and enjoyed yourself along the way. Tune in to Drabblecast B-Sides next week for Part 2, where we'll talk about production music, foley effects, software, EQ, and the art of putting it all together. Until then, weirdos, A Vita Zane!